Hello and welcome to Dateline New Haven and WNHH New Haven's home for community radio. I'm Paul Bass inviting you to look behind the headlines on the stories that make New Haven tick. This is a man who somewhat quietly has made New Haven tick for a while and now is looking to do it in a much more public way. He's an explorer. His name is Liam Brennan. He's exploring officially a run for mayor, which means he's out there talking to people, getting money, getting support, and probably lead up to officially running a campaign for the Democratic nomination for mayor. Liam Brennan, welcome to Dateline New Haven. So nice to see you. Great to see you too, Paul. Good afternoon. Have Thanks you ever, for having me. Have you ever been on the station before? I have never been on the That's station before. That's interesting because you do so many things with housing and criminal justice. I, I'm kind of surprised we've never had, none of, none of our hosts have had you on. This is the first time and I'm really, I'm pumped to be here with you. Well, welcome. So are you also pumped to run for mayor? Um, no, I'm not officially running. You're exploring. I'm, I'm exploring. Which I think is one of the most Weasley words of the political lexicon. I don't know what to tell. Because what to- like you're doing, there's certain rules that you say you're not yeah. officially candidate, that you don't do certain things, but you're not all the way in. You know what I mean? Like some people bypass that stage. They do. They do. I mean, this is officially, as they say it, at the State Elections Enforcement Commission to test the waters and see how things are going. Um, and so that's just what I'm doing right now. Um, and how's it going? I'm, I'm enjoying it. I, I mean, mean, it's I'm- not Weasley if you really mean it. Like, yeah. are you not necessarily definitely running for mayor? Uh, if everything's proceeding as right now, I, I, that's the plan, that I will be running for mayor. But I'm just, you know, You want to make sure, sure you're not jumping into a pool that ends up being laced with arsenic or something. Something like that. Yeah. yeah. So what's it been like? How's it going? Right it's now? been great. I mean, I think, um, you know, even when I'm tired, even when I'm down, getting out and going, being able to talk to people um, is really, really fantastic. I mean, honestly, I come home after talking to folks and I'm just very energized and very excited about hearing what people have to say, hearing what they think about New Haven, hearing where, what they think about where we are. Um, you know, I'm loving it. We were talking about that before we came on the air because that's true for us reporters too. Sometimes we get worn down by some of the controversial stories or the government meetings. And then when we go out and actually just talk to people, you always get new energy. You're revived. You see the goodness mm-hmm. in people. The people are basically good. We have a great city. They care about it. Even when we're talking about challenges, we're kind of in the challenges together. And there's even a fun in trying to make our communities better together. Absolutely. I mean, I think one of the things about New Haven is that like, it's so civically oriented and so many people are involved in doing so many different things. Uh, it's really, really great to hear about each person's like little niche. Everyone's um, got an idea for how Everyone's to, got an idea. And every Yale is a walking 501c3 <laughs> to save the world. But, but everyone at every level has sort of been in a room somewhere once when they said, this is how we're going to like fix poverty or make streets safe or yep. combine neighborhoods to work together to give kids stuff to do or make schools better, you know? Exactly. And and they really love it and they're really passionate about it. And I, I, I love that, you know? I think, you know, Paul, the work you do, the work that's been done here at The Independent is like such a great part of that as well. It's a way that a lot of communities around the country, we don't have that, you know? We don't have local journalism that focuses on those really everyday activities that makes a place a place. And this is one of the things too that it really... Best new feeds, city around. Feeds the, I learned that young. It's yeah. never left. So, Liam, why do you want to be mayor of New Haven? Um, you know, Paul, my kids have been in the public schools for eight years. And at their school, pretty much every year since we've been in there, we have lost a teacher mid-year. My kids have lost teachers multiple years. So even before the whole COVID thing? Even, be- even before the whole COVID thing. And, you, and they go to Edgewood, right? They go to Edgewood. Which is considered one of the better schools in town. Considered one, we're, we're having a great experience. I mean, it's, it's a great school. Um, but our system has not been able to like keep teachers. And what I'm seeing is that I don't see a vision for our education system. And I don't, and it's something that's been frustrating for years. It's been going on for years and nothing has been changing in that realm. Um, also this year we had police officers leave a local man paralyzed. Um, while at the same time we've had 
increase gun deaths in our city and we don't have a vision for reforming and changing our justice system at the municipal level uh, it has been far too long that we really haven't implemented changes that address gun violence. So what's violence. your vision for schools? What would you bring? Um, you know, I think we need to look at our school system and ask, what do our schools deserve? You know, like what do we expect and what do we hope for, for our school system, for our students, and then go out and try to implement that. So for example... Um, you didn't say anything there, by the way. You didn't tell us anything different we're not doing. No, well... We're not doing, we're not putting in a highline vision of like what our big long-term goals are. And for example, like, do we think our students in our schools should study in lower class sizes, similar to the class sizes in other towns? Is that a yes or our no? Our sizes are bigger. Our sizes are bigger. What do you think do about we, that? Given uh, the teacher. Can I give you one more thing yeah, too? Yeah, okay. Yeah. Also, similarly, do we think we should have universal pre-K in this, in this school, in the school system, like we do in other towns, like has been shown to be one of the I most. we do. We don't have universal pre-K. I mean, my kids couldn't get into pre-K. Oh, in, yeah, the, in the slots are competitive at Mayo. Yeah, no, you got to go into a lottery. You don't get in. You don't. So know you where do you're that with go. question marks. What's the what's the declarative statement? So the thing we is, have smaller sizes. Should we have universal pre-K? I think we should. I so think you we say should. yes. In both I, those. The answer there is yes. And then the first step to getting there is saying that these are our priorities. This is what we want and hope from from our school system, and then work backwards, and then cost that. What does that cost? And then. Then and obviously come up costs with a plan. more. It obviously costs more. Then come up with a plan to go through with it. So those are specifics, um, and I was bugging you for specifics here, and now you haven't even declared yet. In terms of an overall vision, what's key, why are we losing teachers more than what might be the national average? Why are schools really out of control now? Even at Edgewood, which is considered one of the better schools, they have a strong principal. Teach, you know, parents are very involved. Even there, there's it, the kids have been bouncing off the walls, and you know they had those special kind of days to try to help them chill out a little bit and you had the you know the teacher who threw the desk was actually a great guy and was being attacked i mean what the schools are kind of going bonkers i don't know that the schools are going bonkers. have you heard about metro I, have, I mean i have heard i have lots of friends that work at metro i have heard about um you know some of the difficulties at metro and elsewhere uh, you know we've all come to a very tough time you know we've all come the post-covid world is like a very very different world um, or even just getting used to kind of going back to what is somewhat normal is tough for everyone. Um, so I don't think I don't think our schools though are out of control, but I do think we need more than just like these short-term fixes or short-term issues um, that we're trying to address and really think about like the system as a whole. Like what do we want and what do we hope for? And for example, like when I started at the Connecticut Veterans Legal Center, when I, I used to be the executive director there, when I took it over um, as ED. We, had a, we were running a six-figure deficit. Our attorneys were the lowest paid legal attorneys in the state. And even though healthcare was one of our number one issues, we could not provide healthcare to our employees' families. And the board was like, we want to expand and we want to be a competitive employer. How do we do that? And it was clearly obvious we were not going to do that unless we changed the culture there, unless we had a goal of paying competitively, providing healthcare to people's families. So how did you get the money? But, we, we set out a vision. It's basic, it's basic strategic planning. We set out a vision that we were going to pay our employees competitively within ideally three years, that we were going to provide health care to our employees' uh, families so that we can be a competitive employer, and that we were going to expand. And in three years, we were running a six-figure surplus. All our employees where, where qualified. Where did the money come from? We went out. We raised grants. Um, we got contracts. We kind of pitched expanded services, and we were able to bring that and in. And this is actually something that very much impressed me when you were considering running for mayor four years ago and we're thinking hard about the issues you had thought about revenues mm -hmm. all right first of all some people will tell you it's not about money 
like with the schools, we get a lot of money. We have a lot coming with ARPA, but we actually, if we're teaching kids not to read, I don't know where you stand on this about like phonics and and the science of learn, uh, yeah. science of reading. Um, well, I mean, there's there's two things there. There's like money and the science of reading. Right there's uh, not money teaching kids not to learn. So if you give them more read, if you give them more money and teach them the old method of cluing by looking at pictures right. to figure out words, they actually have a harder time learning to read. Yeah. Well, my- I think teachers are teaching phonics on the side um, because mm-hmm. they know it works. Um, and I know that's happening. But I also do hear my kids coming home and singing songs about how do you find, you know, what's going on in a sentence? You look at the clues, you look. And I'm just like, it makes my head want to explode because the science of reading and phonics is a real thing. And, it, and why we've taken so long to catch up to the rest of the country is infuriating. Well, what do you think? And about that? Why is that? Because we're not setting out standards and goals well just so our listeners know Mm -hmm. there's something called balanced literacy and structured literacy and that for a long time for decades people very good will very smart people said the way you teach is a whole bunch of ways teaching read because people learn differently look for clues like what a what does the sentence look like what does a word look like what does a picture telling you it is and then more than a decade of brain science research has proved that except for a very small number Mm -hmm. of kids almost everyone is learning not to read poor kids rich kids the rich kids are getting tutors the poor kids aren't because that makes it harder if they're not learning a bigger diet of phonics. New Haven was the last holdout in Connecticut. Even the woman who designed that curriculum made whole career has renounced it. We haven't. Why is that? What does it say about New Haven, and what does that have to do with you running for mayor? I think it shows a lack of vision at the leadership level for New Haven. And I think we see that lack of vision because we have teachers out there who are fighting for this. Teachers are showing up at the Board of Ed hearings, at the Board of Alder hearings, saying that we need to move to structured phonics, uh, science of reading types of literacy. You know, Sarah Levine, um, who lives around the corner from me, she's been out there beating the drum bet. A, a number of other teachers have as well. And that's something that is coming up from our own teaching system and the whole kind of administrative apparatus of the city government is immovable. They're not doing anything about it. And this is what the frustrating thing I see is- What would is you do as mayor? I guess you could, you could, you'd be on the board of ed and you would appoint board of ed members. Yep, and I think the really important thing there is laying out like goals and visions and saying, this is what we wanna do. And then having the superintendent really going forward and doing that. And so we, what we need to do is move to um, more structured literacy. Okay, we're talking to Liam Brennan who's exploring quote unquote legal terms, little TM in the corner, the run for mayor- as Not a, my trademark. As a Democrat, right? Yes. Liam, let's tell people who you are. Where did you grow up? I grew up in Stanford, Connecticut. How long have you been in New Haven? I moved here in 2004. So what, what brought you here? I came here for law school. Yale Law? I did go to Yale oh, Law. Oh, so you're smart. Because I mean, like... I mean, I don't know about Yale that. Yale undergraduate isn't the same thing as Yale Law School. Law school is like you become the president of the sender or something, you know. Well, I'm it's not... Very <laughs> hard. It's very hard to get in there. Um, you know, it, I felt very lucky. I, I felt very... It, it was hard. Um, I felt very lucky to get in there. I got an amazing financial aid package. I didn't have to pay a thing to go there. Really? Yeah, really. Like, um, wow. it was, it was, it was incredible. Um, it was tough, man. I felt so out of place. Like I've never Why? felt so weird and so out of place. Did um, you grow up in a, you know, an elite family or? No, I grew up in a working class neighborhood. Um, Cloden Road in, in Stanford, if you want to check it what out. What road? Cloden Road, if anybody, or in Rochelle, in Rochelle Avenue. C-U-L-L-O-D-E-N. Um, what, but Rochelle you, Avenue most of the time. What did your parents do? Uh, my mom was a teacher. Uh, my dad was a civil servant for the state of New York. Um, uh, if you take Metro North, you run right behind our house. Um, did they, well, how do you sleep with the house? Trains come by your house. Seriously. <laughs> no, it's like, it's tough. It's tough. I mean, we moved out. That, my dad lost his job in, when I was in first grade. And we moved. Um, my parents couldn't keep the house then. So we moved into uh, the basement apartment of one of their friend's houses for a while. Before then, we moved by Stanford Hospital on Rochelle Avenue. 
Um, but you know, a lot of my work is on housing advocacy. Um, and that has, had always been a very formative experience for me that, um, the basement apartment that we moved into was an illegal apartment. Uh, zoning made it, made it, I was going into second grade. So, and I really remember this moment, you know, like we were in, there was that we had two, two floors in our house and my mom set me down on the stairs and saying things like pink slip and you know, dad doesn't have a job and we're going to What had he move. been doing for the state? Um, he worked in, um, uh, people with mental disabilities and group homes. Um, and, uh, there'd just been, you know, a bunch of layoffs. And how many just, siblings did you have? I had one little sister. Well, that must've been um, hard for you at that age. It, it was, it was, um, you know, they were, you know, she's a positive woman. She's, a, I mean, she's 81 now and she's just like, where did she teach? Uh, she taught in Stanford public schools. Um, what, what grade? She taught English as a second language. Um, she taught, um, then she became a guidance counselor. Um, which was, dude, it was, so tell a me crazy about this illegal apartment. So you in a basement apartment for you. Yeah. It was just for a couple of months, but basement apartment. Um, uh, and it wasn't until later that my mom told me, you know, like, we're not really supposed to talk about that. We're there. Um, but it was like such a lifesaver for us at this moment where we needed like a real help. Um, and this is what we call naturally affordable housing. Um, and the fact that it is something accessible to families that can give them a place to live is something we should be really trying to create and celebrate um, so what happened after those few months they were able to like get themselves together he got i got a job we were able to kind of get a where house he, where over get a job? on back in new york again i can't remember if he went back to the state at this point he went to some nonprofits after a while that did the same thing ran and group, did you where, is that when you moved next to the railroad line no no we railroad beforehand um then by stanford hospital afterward so liam tell me where that brings you the question of zoning i'm uh, going to put the on the table where yeah, my sure. bias is not that my bias matters I'm an extremist on zoning. Okay. I think that when I hear your story or I hear about when they didn't let the woman own the, do the crafts factory or lumbar sheet behind her house, I think that there's no reason to have any zoning except for health and safety and like not have kids grow up in a strip bar and not have some pollution going into your window. Why do we need zoning about where you can put an apartment or anything like that? So is a strip bar health I'm saying and if safety? health and safety. Is that health and safety? That's safety, I guess you're saying? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, that's a good question. <laughs> but I think that there are certain yeah. kind of extreme examples where you extremes, want to protect yep. kids, protect families, protect your health. But outside of that, why do we say where's a store or where you can put an apartment or basement, where you can, how many store, how, what, what it should look like, on a, what uh -huh. materials you can use, if you can have a store with apartments over it or not. Or you, what? I totally agree. I mean, I totally agree that we overzone. Um, I do think that communities should be able to come together and kind of like think about what they want their city to look like or how they want to construct it. And that the, one of the ways we do that is through zoning. So I don't think there's a total, um, well, in any case, no place for zoning. What do you take out of your experience? If okay. you said it was a yes, experience, I take out of my experience that we need, we need our zoning is way too restrictive. It, even in New Haven, it's exclusionary. It makes makes the cost of housing go up, and it keeps people from like access. A we lot did of do times, ADUs, adjustable dwelling units, the mother-in-law yep. apartments. We sort of make what you think illegal, but you know, it's so funny neighborhood neighborhood, Liam, because mm -hmm. you have extremists like me. But then when you do that fun thing of talking to people, you see that life's more complicated. Totally. So in some neighborhoods like Goatville or or Westville, it makes a lot of sense. Why can't you just stay another apartment in the back? There's plenty of land, no one minds. Why can't you like make housing more affordable? But then you go on the hill on some of the side streets there near, let's say, Clemente School or something, 
and it's so narrow and there's mm -hmm. so many cars and these some of these people actually need a car to work mm -hmm. you can't park anywhere and they're hearing like everything that's being said in the kitchen and the next door so they don't want you to a, say you can build on extra apartments mm -hmm. i mean i think that's why it's important to kind of engage communities on this uh, and talk but take to... a stand here your experience what should have been done what's how should our zoning change so that your family shouldn't have had a you know, I, where they're living i mean not just my family any you know any families I, there needs to be more housing like we do not have enough housing and relaxing our zoning rules is part of the way we need Which like, kind of we rules? Need, can Which we just say rules? we also need public investment in affordable housing so this is you know this there's like um out there and so i'm trying to speak to everybody out there as well okay so first go with zoning what zoning would you relax um density yeah, i would relax density i would relax density i would relax parking requirements I, these are things that can be done kind of immediately and easily um to allow not for, easily when neighborhoods get mad well, no, not when neighborhoods get mad, but you got to, you know, work with people and talk to people. I think, I think most people are very sympathetic. Uh, and what about like, to, the, well, what I was going to say, most people are very sympathetic to, you know, housing for people is more important than housing for cars. And also that we know that like parking requirements drive up the cost of housing, parking requirements. You can choose to have parking space. Like you can, people can make that choice and they don't have to, um, Put an and what ADU about legalizing? Them. Now, obviously, safety is a concern. Like mm -hmm. when they when they shut down Daggett Street and those apartments, that was a few months before the ghost ship in Oakland. Uh -huh. So all the people who are kind of you know outside the mainstream might be independent type people saying it's terrible. Artists were living there. You shut down this former factory where they were living, but in fact, there was no legal way. There was no way to get out in a fire. Uh -huh. And after they shut that out, and this landlord was soaking up all his money illegally, and then ghost ship in Oakland, the same kind of place, all these people died when they had concerts just the way they did. Oh, so got... there is a reason to not just let people live anywhere. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely, so what, Paul. Give me if a I little could... concrete for me here about yeah. like ADUs are you talking about? What are you talking ADUs, about? ADUs, more multifamilies, relaxing um, side setback requirements, all sorts of things. Mm -hmm. Using there are, there are tons of properties around New Haven, like empty lots that, we, that used to hold homes that we cannot rebuild homes, the same homes that used to be there, rebuild homes on those properties. If you go to the corner of Chapel- they've been grandfathered with the evil zoning. Yep, if you go to the corner of, and you guys wrote about this, but the, the corner of Chapel and the Boulevard, we had um, an office with a multifamily home above it on that corner that, there. It's now a parking lot because the new zoning will not let you rebuild. Those are four homes for families that they could live in our vacancy rate is less than 2% in the city. As a mayor, can you change the zoning? Absolutely, you can. How? I mean, you, you do need to engage, like, well, you know I've got king. a plan for this. Okay, I mean, tell me that. I mean, you do need to go through, like, if you want to change, permanently change zoning, you need to go through zoning reform. And so you'll have to, you know, change the ordinance. Which and we so are doing. And we which are we are doing. And we would have to go through the Board of Olds to do that. I do think facing an environmental crisis, um, which we are, which the Board of Olders has declared, you do have crisis powers and the big and the environmental crisis we want to reduce local emissions what's the biggest thing that reduces local emissions infill housing studies have shown that infill housing is the biggest policy and change and that's taking vacant land and building it and that's in taking vacant land and building it so people can live closer and live there that it's the biggest step you can take as a policy to reduce emissions and if you have an emergency powers to do that you can temporarily lift uh the zoning rules to allow that we're to talking to liam brenner who's exploring which means he's running for mayor but we won't have to say that legally right and he's here on wnha stateline new haven talking about his campaign and i keep interrupting you because it's so interesting to talk to you about ideas i've actually always felt that you're a person who is focused on a lot of ideas and policy but i interrupted your life trajectory story you came to new haven because you did all these things yep. that tie into these issues yep. so you went to law school you stayed here after law school um, and I stayed, well, I, I went to DC for three years. What'd you do? My, I, um, joined the department of justice. I got into the honors program at the department of justice and What's I got that? to, it's like how you get to go in right out of law school. 
And so I got to go in immediately, um, and I had, but I had to go to DC for a few years. What'd you do? Um, so I was in the fraud section at the criminal division, and I. Oh, you're a prosecutor. For I it? was a prosecutor. Oh, that must have been great. It was like, crazy. Um, yeah. uh, it was crazy. Um, I feel like when you're doing that kind of, especially it was a corporate fraud. Yep. I oh mean, my guys, like, how do you even begin? I mean, I did I mean, in nine cases. I worked on cheating. Yeah, no. I mean, it was, <laughs> um, it was a chance to take on some of like the biggest corporate titans. Um, uh, Who'd you and, do? Um, two executives from Enron, um, T-Mobile with bribing officials in. Um, well, they wouldn't say they were actually bribing officials, but the, they. Um, uh, officials in Eastern Europe. Um, uh, there was some fraud on USAID. We had people who stole USAID food and were selling it and b building themselves estates. And wow. so this was like, um, it was amazing. It was an amazing opportunity. Um, it was also an opportunity to like kind of see the belly of the beast and see the bad side of things as well. And I remember, I mean, one of the first um, cases that I had um, was a... Uh, I think it was a sergeant in the army who was taking bribes from Afghan officials to award them um, uh, contracts, uh, trucking contracts. Um, it was a really sad case. You know, in the end, the guy's girlfriend stole all his money and she spent it on somebody else. But um, uh, after the man was sentenced, the guy, the woman who did public relations for the DOJ was like, oh, wow. You know, came up to me and said, you know, oh, wow, that's a great sentence. You never, you know, get a sentence like that. It was dark, man. Like, it was like the first, I mean, it was just like so obvious, like. It was about winning a sports round, thinking yep. about the human cost of life. It's, it's the human person. cost of life. Like that is, that the way people in those roles. Law is so much like sports. That it's lawyer. like the only way you can kind of prove or a way that you prove uh, you've been successful or any way you keep scoring yourself and prove that you're doing a good job is like the, the length of a sentence. Like that really dropped a pit in my stomach off the bat. Um, and so. Um, you know, and part of the reason I wanted to go into that was kind of like to fight those trends. Um, but, um, it's, it's there. And so it was, it was all, it was, so in that, in that sense, it was all of these things. It was a really, it was overall a really, really amazing experience. Too. So then where did you go after that? I came right back here. I mean, really wanted to come back here. Why? Um, I loved it. So as I was saying before, like I got, I got to law school, I felt so out of place. I, I mean, people, you know, I, I was working in some, bar, I worked at Playwright here. Um, I worked back at Teguin in Stanford. Um, and like my classmates would be like, kind of look at me funny. oh like you have a job that's that's quaint and it's so weird like i thought i knew um wealthy people growing up you know like uh i am um, and like i was familiar with this experience um but even like the like you know like the the rich girl that i knew like she had a job on the side too she worked in like a um a paper store um but like this was like a whole nother world and so i felt and i didn't i didn't feel like i belonged or was worthy to be there at the same time, New Haven like opened up its arms to me, and I felt like you know, that's exactly I loved I, being here. I it was so like great. When I went to Yale undergraduate in the seventies, uh -huh. I felt like I never belonged. It was the weirdest thing. And then New Haven was the place was like my refuge. It was a refuge, yeah. yeah. And like you know, I, I was loved the city. Yeah, I was I you know volunteered at Junta, and I was uh, doing work out there, and just uh, getting involved in the city. It was just such so a you dynamic to come back to New Haven. place. So I wanted so to come I back. You to, back. So um, I had a three-year commitment that I had to fill in D.C. Um, just as I was filling the three-year commitment there, a position opened up doing the same thing up here in the U.S. At the Attorney's, U.S. Attorney's Office. Office. So you, Attorney's what, what role did you have here? So I was um, in the financial fraud and public corruption section Ooh. here at the U.S. Attorney's Office. Was that Office. under Kevin O'Connor? Nope. Uh, Kevin, it was under David Fine first and then Deirdre mm -hmm. Daly. Oh, good boss. A.K.A. the best boss in the world. Yeah, she was great. Yeah. So you work, what kind of cases did you work on there? 
so Roland did, case, right? The Governor Roland case. I was I, did, I was lead prosecuting the Governor Ro- Governor prosecutor. Governor Roland's second case. Right. His second Roman, case. He, we used to have Roman numerals. Yes. Roland, Roland two. part two. <laughs> Roland part two. Um, um, well, what'd you, you learn from that? You will remember and the. Okay, what did I learn from that one? Um, you know, a lot of people think that you know that's my biggest Highline case. Everybody wants to talk about the Roland case, and it was tough. Um, it was you know very high profile. Um, but it wasn't like legally the toughest case, you know, when, um, compared to some other cases that we had to do. But it was a you know a clean government. That's when he got one of the get one of the candidates, I think, in Litchfield County, who was yep. running for Congress to hire him as a consultant. Hire him as a consultant. They were paying him through a shell company that was connected to her husband's a healthcare company because they didn't want it to be public, but they wanted yeah. his power to go you out. You know, and that get was her. almost like a sad follow-up to Roland one Roland one was like they caught him all these years he was flying high he had the contractors getting no bid contracts and building him cottages and paying money on the side and his colleagues were burying gold in yep. the ground remember and they had an LLC oh yeah oh, his my. Name. Uh-huh. but the second one was pathetic he came out of prison and he did it again for chump change I mean that was sad well the thing is he did it for chump change he also tried it the cycle before with a different candidate I know it's he like pitched, he, why would he want to go back to prison I don't know but the man was also earning like five hundred thousand dollars a year I don't understand it it was just crazy he just couldn't help himself he just could I don't know I don't know. I don't want to. I don't want to pass judgment. On you weren't a psychologist. You were I'm a not a psychologist. I just this needed to come to light. And what I did learn from that case is it almost died a million times. Um, oh. uh, um, but we just kind of kept following the evidence and kept talking to people. But um, now you want to be a chief executive. Yep. How do you make sure you're not the person to be prosecuted by the next Liam Brennan? You just kind of you gotta be honest. That's, that's what you. <laughs> know, it's not, it's think, not that hard. It's not I that hard. If I were ever in public office, which I'll never be, uh-huh. I think I might go to prison. Because when you, I, I look closely at cases I'd written about, when uh-huh. people like one of the most corrupt people I ever covered was a really good guy and always helped people do his job well. And it was easy for his boss to solve a problem and get something done with him. And he thought it's kind of a win-win. He makes a little money on the side. Obviously, that, you know that part's dirty. Uh-huh. But he'd also do some other stuff that was kind of dirty because it kind of got the job done. And I think when you're trying, when you're in office, it's so much harder than when you're running for office to actually accomplish something that you know is good. And sometimes the way you get it done is, okay, first you appoint someone to a commission because they'll vote for you at the convention. Well, no money changed hands, and that lets you put your policy through that you think. And it gets to be a slippery slope. I don't think it's as easy as people think to stay out of prison uh-huh. if you're in public office. Well, that's uh, well, that's scary. Um, so you're still exploring. Think, you can always back out. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um I think it's easier, you know, than you're making it sound. I mean, you know, when you see the money changing hands or when you say, right, like, I'm going to do one, this, but, I'm going to do this But it's not always that, that. often. It's, it's no bid contracts. It's often finder fees, the person who helps. Well, you know, remember there was a guy who was getting all these um, development contracts 20 years ago and the guy who struck the deal would advise someone to go to the insurance company and then he was making money from the insurance company to find people. Uh-huh. I... Okay, you're saying I, you're I, think, I think people if, if they're they, prosecuting like, Roland, you don't think they, you're going to be up there on the stand. I think if they ha- have an inner compass and they have people that they talk to, then people can avoid going to prison. But I do hear your point, and I think one of the things we saw that was um, closest to that point. I mean, the Nicole Jefferson case um, right. was one where you know I, I handled that case as well. That was the city CEO of the city who had a, a for a non for profit. She was running out of her same office and getting donations from the people she was regulating. Not her fault. It was set up by her bosses. But it was an inherently corrupt arrangement. Not that she was corrupt, but you guys let her off. Well, she didn't do anything illegal. I mean, but, based but, on based on anything that we could, see, you know. But that was right, a situation. Right. What I'm using crooked. that as an example yeah. of that was a situation where the whole system started moving against the woman, 
and was going to like that ground, was your ground read, her down. But there was yeah. someone running for mayor she was part of who was actually orchestrating a way of seeing that case where something that was so obviously wrong, not by her, mm-hmm. was defended and given a pass by the U.S. Attorney's Office. How can you, when you're running, if you're the mayor mm-hmm. and you have a council of equal opportunities, are you going to allow out of that office a nonprofit run that's funded by the people who you're overseeing? donations i don't i do not have any plans to do that no i don't think so do you think that was okay um i don't think the idea was necessarily corrupt i mean maybe maybe there's maybe there's things i don't know about you know what i'm saying but, but you're gonna like, be raising money are you gonna raise money from people you're regulating or are you gonna go on the democracy fund no i'm gonna do the. i mean if i go if i run a, if i do a campaign right now i'm still just exploring but um i'm planning on you know that th- this looks like it's su- successful um i would be doing the democracy fund Why? i think that's one i think the whole idea of like not taking contractor money is super important. I think you've made that point. Um, the other thing, I think it is a, I think the democracy fund has a couple goals. One is to get like, you know, influential money in the city out of, out of the politics. Two is to kind of level the playing field question query, whether it does that. Um, uh, and you know, three is just like a general good government kind of, you know, people's funded campaign. I want this to be a people's campaign. I want this to be, um, something that the you know public broad speaking is invested in, um, and so that is being part of the democracy fund is is part of that. Now I know some of the other people running don't think they can be competitive by doing the democracy fund. But you know they're, they're you not get plenty of money. It. You get enough money if you qualify. You have to prove you qualify. Now if you only get your money from out of state right. consultants, then you're not going to qualify. You have to get local money. Mm-hmm. But they've kind of made it so you have plenty of money to run. I I do think I do think they've made it that you have enough. I think I think you can run a competitive campaign even against. An incumbent. Because uh, after a while, fund. there's diminishing returns to the money. The question is, can you get your money out there? Mm-hmm. Like Linda McMahon raised fifty, spent fifty million dollars twice running for Senate. She so outspent Richard Blumenthal and Chris Murphy five or ten to one. Mm-hmm. But they had enough money. Yep. Or when Dan Malloy ran for governor with public money against self-funders, he was outspent three or four to one. But he had enough money to get his his message out. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, That's you, my you ad. Have... You need to come here for my ad. <laughs> you do have enough money to do it. Yes. Liam Brennan. Running uh, exploratory candidate for mayor of New Haven, Democrat, right? Democrat yes, nomination. sir. So, Liam, what did you do? How long were you in the U.S. Attorney's Office in New Haven? Uh, U.S. Attorney's Office in New Haven, I was there for seven years, I think. Wow. DOJ total, it was like 11 years. Time goes so um, fast. Time does go so fast. Where where'd you, where'd you leave there for? I remember you leaving. Yep, I left for New Haven Legal Assistance. Oh, what'd you do there? Um, I was part of like the inaugural team of the community and um economic development unit which now is a community economic justice unit what did that mean um we try to you know legal assistance usually takes on just um individual single clients um and the idea of this unit was to take on kind of like groups and um do well, in the like, past they used to do class action lawsuits and the republicans in congress made sure that legally couldn't do class <laughs> action lawsuits mm-hmm. but this wasn't actually lawsuits right this was like organizing this was like organizing. Yes. So we had two community organizers um, who, yeah. who were part of the unit. And then we would like represent groups uh, that were part of the unit. Now, just want to say New Haven Legal Assistance can do um, class action lawsuits oh, they because can? they don't take the federal money. So oh. the federal money all goes to state um, statewide legal, legal services. services. And so we have and they an can arrangement. Give that money so, yeah, they can they can they can That's do so things that facilitate the New Haven Legal Assistance so that New Haven. So it's good. It's a good situation for LA that they can still do class. action. So how long were you at legal aid? So there for a year. Um, uh, what we did there, I mean, the big Jaywan Carter, who's representing, who's backing one of your opponents, said, "Let's go. It's good to have options." Thanks for listening, Jaywan. Thanks, Jaywan. Um, uh, you know, we represented 
local groups. We represented um, the Dixwell Community Management you Team. You rented a group we, that was fighting against this thing you're calling for right now today in this interview. There was a group that fought against easing zoning rules so that you could have more. Um, yep, in Dixwell, the legal aid was representing uh, neighbors who successfully shot down a city effort to change zoning laws to have more mixed use zoning and density. So they called it gentrification. When I was there, we were part of we were part of the Room for All coalition, which fought for a lot of uh, relaxation of zoning okay. rules. If you you I think have a whole proposal. <clears throat> Up on the website somewhere. We came up with, I think, like... I remember Room for All. Yeah, yep. and so Room for All, that was, like, our big thing. And so we um, inclusionary zoning was one of those things, but a lot of these zoning changes also were part of... And where do you stand on well. build, build, build? So as you know, Liam, yep. there's a debate going on in America that often has left against left and right against right, uh-huh. which says one... And it's really a lot of theory. We, no yeah, one knows totally. for sure. Uh-huh. One idea is that every time you put on rules like inclusionary zoning and you have to set aside a bunch of affordable housing apartments when you build something, because everyone says all these apartments being built, although not all of them, are for wealthy people, that in fact, you're going to make it harder to have affordable housing. And they're talking about a theory about uh, supply, uh, supply and demand in economics, that if you make it more expensive to build units, the private market won't build as many, so they won't build anything at all. But if you let people just build, 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 the market eases itself out. So if you let people build a lot of market-rate apartments on House Street, one block over on Dwight, you won't be able to charge as much for an existing apartment because there's plenty to go around. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? Yep. But other people say that's theory. In real life, when you start building a lot of expensive housing somewhere, it kind of changes the culture and the market. More people come in, and people do end up getting priced out because people a block away say they're getting that much over there. I think and get much here. How, how do you solve? Where are you on build, build, build versus put in requirements for affordable housing? And I think it's. Housing? I don't think it's an either or. I think the either or politician. No, no, no. I I am. I am completely serious about this, though, Paul. Like, I don't think normally this comes down in terms of like public funding for housing or build, build, build. You know, Um, I think we need both. We need both. We need non-market housing here in New Haven. No one ever said you don't. Yeah. Yeah, but I mean, but. Some of the build, build, build people are all just about building. Because the truth is, truly affordable housing, if you're not a slumlord, doesn't make you tons of money. It doesn't work. The only way really low-income housing rentals work in the private market is if you have rapacity as your business model. Yeah. You're siphoning off Section 8 rents and other kinds of stuff. Some of the build, build, build folks put down local advocates when they say, like, where's, you know, what's up with this development? Where's the stuff for us? But how could could anyone be against, like, Beulah, where they're doing on No, nobody's. Well, Beulah is... Well, Beulah is the crown jewel of right. all, you know. I mean, this is the, this a is the ideal. A vacant lot where it's Right. I mean, what what Daryl Brooks and his team have done there is just like incredible. And so I'm really, really hopeful that you know what that what that holds. But the truth is, though, in terms of building, we don't have enough apartments. We just straight up don't right. have enough homes for people. When you have a vacancy rate that's less than two percent in the city, there's not enough houses. And when there's not enough houses, homelessness goes up. You know, homelessness is a housing pro- problem. So and we how just would need... you, how, what were some of your ideas? Now we talked about zoning changes. Zoning changes. I think we have excess city property as well. Like the city Give owns examples. the city owns eight hundred and thirty properties across across the city. Um, mm-hmm. we could put housing on some of those. But we also have my main example, excess street space. We have street space that can be converted to housing. And this this will help us hit multiple goals. So give me some First examples one, of the street spaces. I mean, if you just, just go around the corner and you look at Church Street, Church Street coming up to the green from Gateway, it's huge. Do you know, look at a size of an apartment building, how many apartment buildings you could put on the existing street space, what's not being used by cars. Like I'm trying to it's, think where, like surface <laughs> lots? If you look, not even surface lots, I'm talking about the street. 
the pavement. Oh, you think the you think we should have narrower lanes? Yep. And like put, what we're going to do on State Street. Like you must like that project we're getting from the State on State Street. I do. Street. I mean, I've, I've so looked at that for that, years. So do more of that. More squeezing the street. Closer. Absolutely. And you will hit so many goals. You will hit housing goals. You will hit environmental goals, and you will hit safe so street goals. So these you would are make all narrower, and you would put like I'm trying to think where you'd put it. It's really interesting. Just idea. measure it across. Measure it across, and then measure apartment buildings or row houses, and you can fit so but wouldn't many. Wouldn't it be in front of the existing ones? Yep. Yep. And what you could do there, you have a sidewalk there. You could make it much wider and have like a greenway that could take uh, pedestrians and bikers and and um, you know scooters or whatever, and then have a narrower road because most of the time that road is empty. It's empty most of the time, and then you'd have more homes, and this so will help reduce. This, this, so will this will reduce carbon emissions. This will boost safe streets and will provide housing the most important thing. So give me some of the examples of street space and excess property. You, you, do, you, do it, you, do it, you do it elsewhere. I mean, you just look at the, the same measurement I did on Church Street there. You can do elsewhere. I mean, even George Street measured out George Street before. Where? You could put like down near, um, you know, where George crosses, was that church? Um, where George crosses church and then up to temple, like you could actually bring it down to one lane and like you could fit row houses on the empty space, create a greenway in between them um, and have an narrower street that takes That's the cars. That's so interesting. And what about excess buildings? For instance, there are about, I think, 12 kids going to the West Rock, Matt. Yep. I mean, I'm sorry, the Catherine Brennan Rogers. Rogers. Annex. Is that what you're thinking, that they're excess schools? There's Although that, you do you want could, smaller classes, though, so you can need more space. Right. I mean, you could have, you could use school space. You could use other, you know, there's well, other properties. Give me properties. examples. You've I mean, like, thought about this. Because um, you mentioned 830. Obviously, there aren't 830 properties. No, there, but many like of those armory, are empty, empty lots. You the think armory, armory? The armory. You'd have to do remediation there. But um, the armory, I mean, the, you there's know. There's environmental money right now with I know. DEP, and we have a New Haven Absolutely. there. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, armory, and then where else? The armory, I mean, it's not available anymore, but the um, the community space in Trowbridge Square is now going to be turned into right. something, which is great. But that was like prime spot and a really cute square that's not being used. Yeah. You could have either community space, which is great. I'm glad it's going to, you know, but you could have housing as well. well you could put housing on top of eight, spaces. Okay, give me examples. Like you there are, there's empty, I mean, the empty lots then too. The give city owns empty lots all over Newhallville, the hill. If you go through, the city owns tons of empty lots where there used to be homes. Yet, either... Hold on to them and turn them into homes, and you can own the property. I know there's a debate, and I haven't really took, not sure where I come down and whether to continue to own it or put it into private hands. But, um, but put homes there no matter what. Just And you ease the zoning to do it, and the city invest in the homes, and you can make it affordable, and people can live there. I want me to see some more of the public buildings. Would you have fewer school buildings? Make some of them? I don't know. I'm not sure. All right. Liam Brennan is exploring a search for... Uh, Mayor, so after the year legal aid, where'd you go? Um, I was recruited to become the executive director at the Connecticut Veterans Legal Center. And that was CVLF that you were saying later. CVLC. CVLC. CV. Connecticut Veterans Legal you Center. You didn't ask my advice. I'm give you anyway. Earlier in the program, you talked about CVLC. Tell people what that is. Yes, yeah, CVLC is the Connecticut Veterans Legal Center. It's a legal aid um, that provides free legal housing, uh, free legal services to um low-income, um, either homeless or at risk of homeless veterans um, or mentally ill veterans, usually most of our clients were both, um, in partnership, in a medical legal partnership with the VA. And so um, we, we do basically legal aid services um, in conjunction with doctors and And how long did you nurses. do that? So I was there for about three years. And then you made, you got a really interesting job now that I do want to ask you about yep. in Hartford. Yeah. 
You're sort of the sheriff of the cops, right? So I'm the inspector. So from there, um, I became the inspector general um, in Hartford, where I look into uh, complaints against the police and police misconduct. Yes. Is it for a police? Is it for a civilian review board? It is for the civilian police review. It's their civilian review board. It's for the civilian police review. How board. long have you been doing that? I've been doing that for a year. And tell me about that. What what is that? What struck you there? Did you have, did it has it worked out the way you thought? Is it giving you ideas how to be mayor and deal with? I mean, oh. our civilian review board re, reconstituted and still not really doing much. Yeah, it's got. I mean, it's given me tons of ideas, and I've been working with folks um, on and off here in New Haven to try and help the New Haven civilian review board because of what I've learned there. I mean, I think the thing is, I got it because some people asked me to. There's a state inspector general as well, and um, some community groups asked me to apply for that. I did. I didn't get it, um, but then the the Criminal Justice Commission folks reached out to me and were like, hey, there's this job in Hartford doing the same thing or similar thing. You should really think about that. And then when I looked at it, it was this great opportunity because I do think um, criminal justice reform and, and restructuring the justice system is the civil rights issue of our time. Mm-hmm. And this is an opportunity to actually like work full time in criminal justice reform. Um, and what they have is they have a civilian review board. But after 2020 and George Floyd, um, they decided that they didn't think the Civilian Review Board was powerful enough. And what they did was they created an Office of Inspector General to actually investigate the cases and then bring them before the board. Have you been doing uh, that? And that's what I've been doing. How many and, cases you brought? Um, I mean, this last year we had, I'm trying to get a full total for 2022, but we had at least 66. I was working on case number 66 last, last um Do you have a staff? Earlier. I do. I have... Um, there's two investigators I work with, um, and then there's a support staff person and as well. what are you finding in these cases? Are you... You know, some are not big. Some are bigger. Do you have subpoena power? Um, and let me just say, right now I'm speaking from my personal capacity, and I'm not speaking here on the show as the inspector general. You're not even um, an exploratory candidate. It's even a question of whether you are <laughs> Liam Brennan. Yeah. But, I am, but I am speaking about my, you know, my own experiences, my thoughts about this system. I do have subpoena power, which is hugely important and very, very good that the city gave it um, to the board. Um, cities have the option to give their civilian review board subpoena power. We have kind of pretty much done it here in New Haven, and they made it a little fuzzy whether they did it or not, but they did. Um, but in for- so this is where there is a gap between what the law says and what it is and actually effectuating it. So we're given, we're given subpoena authority. What does that mean? How do you use it? What does this, the subpoena look like? No one's ever written one of these subpoenas before. No one's ever seen one of them. So I went, so when I w- first wanted to use the subpoena, I went to Corporation Council. I was like, so we have subpoena authority. What does, you know, what's the subpoena? And he's like, I don't know. I think you create it. I mean, go for it. So literally, like, I created, I looked at old federal grand jury subpoenas and created a subpoena for the Civilian Review Board. Um, it's been upheld by the courts, so I feel good about that. But then you have to go into court to get it enforced if somebody doesn't follow it. Some people just see it and they follow it. Other people, you know, we had a hospital say, we're happy to follow this, but since we've never seen it before, can you just get a court order and then we'll follow it? So I had to go to court and do that. Here in New Haven, we have a civilian review board that, at least in theory, has subpoena power. But who's going to issue it for them? Who's going to write those subpoenas for them? They've been unloved. and I don't think so. They've been unloved and uncared for. They expect their board members to go down to the police department and do the investigations themselves and go through the documents and evidence themselves. I thought they have a staffer, Emma Jones. The board, they do, they, do, they do have a staffer, but the board members are suspect are expected to go to the police department. So what would you do different with our CRB? I would, I would put in an inspector general position. I, I would put in an inspector general position with um, that the CRB would act as the panel to hear the cases and to decide to make the ultimate But we don't decision. have as much authority as Hartford's, right? They actually can't. They can't initiate their own cases. That's another thing that, that Hartford did. It allowed the civilian police review board to initiate so its own cases. So you think we should too? Absolutely. No question. 
Now, what are you going to tell people who are concerned about there was a backlash to, to um, defund the police, right? Mm -hmm. People are saying we want cops in our neighborhood. We have too few. We want to be protected. Mm -hmm. Are you going to be seen as sort of like the anti-cop candidate? How, how are you going to deal with crime? I mean, hopefully I'm not going to be, hopefully I'm not going to be seen as the end. I'm not anti-anything. I am pro-reform. Yeah, so and how, I do tell think, me what reform would I do look like. I mean, I do think that a really strong police accountability system um, that has an effective civilian review board um, with an inspector general is really important. Um, I do think that we need to end the war on drugs, like completely. It's can a over. mayor do that? Yes, he can. And I can tell no. you how. Um, nothing obligates us as a municipality, as a city, to engage in the federal government's or the state's continued war on drugs. That has failed for the last so would you say years. make no drug arrests, zero? You can pull out. You can just say we are not, that is not our priority and that's not what we're going to do. And I will tell you that in 2020, the year 2020, okay, most of Connecticut has done this. Across Connecticut, we know that people use, distribute, um, uh, sell drugs at the same rate across demographics, race, class, geography, all these things, right? In the state of Connecticut in, in 2020, uh, less than 7% of all arrests were for drug offenses, in New Haven, do you know what the percentage was? 40% of our arrests were for drug offenses. We are over-prosecuting our own residents for something well, that, you know, is, often, that is something that is a public... Often that's the charge they slap on someone who's doing a lot of bad stuff. The catch on the court, a guy recently with all this fentanyl, he's also doing gun crime and stuff, but take the hard to make. Take the fentanyl. They don't have to keep it. Take the fentanyl. But if he's got a gun, if he's doing gun crime, prove Well, how do you take the fentanyl the, if you're not doing drug well, arrests? I mean, if you caught him for something legitimate, you have to do it legitimate. You have to do actual investigations. Well, would you get rid of drug investigations? Like, what would you do about yes, fentanyl? Yes, I, I would do... You could, you could do investigations and take the fentanyl. I mean, you could do that. You can confiscate it. Nobody has a right to illegal, illegal stuff. But we don't need to be, like, putting people in the system for this anymore. Like, this is destructive. It is can more... You it's a, can it's you confiscate? I, I get your point. I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm those lungs, too. Can you confiscate without an arrest? Yep, absolutely. Yes, you can. Okay. <laughs> that's, so that's, you... that's the answer. But the thing is, here's the thing. If you're concerned about violence, investigate and do those cases. What we had in 2021 here in this city, we had 25 murders, 22 of which went completely unsolved. Completely unsolved. Well, it takes a while. You know it's, that. They, I do know it takes a while. Yeah. I do know it takes a while. But what the answer we got is like, we don't have enough detectives. I'm so, reallocate people to, to investigate those cases. I mean, and the other thing along those lines, and here we can borrow kind of some of the philosophy from, I mean, one, we can borrow philosophy from every area and apply them here. So if you look at drugs, what we've done with nicotine and how we've been able to like regulate out and like address, um, you know, nicotine addiction has been really successful. And it's been done without putting anyone in jail without labeling them with a felony conviction for the rest of their lives. See, now the we first thing people are going to say is some people who don't think along your lines are going to say, you're just going to let people run wild selling illegal drugs. Nope. nope. No. Tell me about it. Because there's, they don't have a right to sell the drugs. If you have somebody selling the drugs, like on the green or whatever, you go up and you take the drugs if you actually have them. And you can do selling. that without an arrest. Yes. Because it's, it's an illegal substance. The cop substance. can just seize it. You, yes. I mean, okay. if they have... If, if they have probable cause or, or reasonable suspicion to to engage that or person if you're stopping you have a to car actually... for another reason you find the drugs you could take the drugs yeah but you're uh, saying but I don't mean, stop the car I, I i also think police should be taken out of traffic stops but um we'll, we'll get there for a moment that is an interesting may, issue that is if, an interesting if, issue. yes but if i may um similarly we have a you know we obviously have a gun violence problem here um, and what we know is that the availability, the nearness, the just like accessibility of guns makes gun violence much more likely. 
if people don't have access to them or don't have them nearby, they're less likely to use them. And this is similar to what we see in like safe streets campaigns where, um, you know, for a long time, people like thought like traffic enforcement was the most important thing. But really, we found that you can like get a lot of the ends and even get better results if you like redesign spaces and you re and you narrow roads, you put in speed bumps, you make. So tell me about gun violence. So gun we're violence, out of time. we have absolute no vision in the city for a municipal gun regulation. And we need one. A municipal gun regulation. Don't we need that, state, we need state uh, enabling legislation. No, we don't. No, we, don't. <laughs> we, have, we have a lot of police powers in which we, we are able to do that. Give me examples. Um, well, the, the police grants, I mean, sorry, the state legislature already grants us authority um, for health and safety to, to, cr to create local ordinances. And, um, and there's even, you know, the case, New Haven case, kind of the Supreme Court of the state upheld that we have like very broad authority under that, under our police powers. Uh, unless the state has specifically said we can't do it. So, what you so that was that, do? that I would specifically say that we have to um, register and track all guns in the city. And then if somebody knows of a gun that is not registered and tracked, they can inform authorities and that can be taken. And that is going to like incentivize more cooperation from people than if people think that contacting authorities are going to get their loved ones arrested. That we, we need to like totally So not arrest the people for are. having the gun, just take the gun? If it's if all it is is knowing that there's an illegal gun, yes. So not arrest people for owning an illegal gun. Just take the gun at first. Arrest people for other crimes. So in other words, you're saying people are more likely to to give you information about a, a gun to be taken from someone they care about if they think they won't be we, arrested. We just there there are models out there that we can use to kind of do this at a municipal level, and we do have we have much more authority than one more like, quick example because this is really interesting to me. Um, one more quick example on what I'm sorry. How you could do the guns, <laughs> what what powers we could have with guns. Because I'm always told by the police their hands are tied. They can't even say no to someone they don't want to give a gun permit to because it's such strict regulation, state and federal. I think I think that is we have a um, we are used to thinking that we need the state's permission to do everything, but actually we've been granted a lot more power. So give me another example of what you think we could do with uh, guns. I'm not sure right now, but I'll, okay. I'll, I'll come up Well, Leon, I want you to come back because you're so interesting to talk to. I you're would love to come back. Paul. with ideas. So, I would love, thank you so much for having me here. And I think the most important thing to know is that we don't have to accept the city as it is, the city government as it is. We have the power within us to change it. And we can go out and make the changes that we want to see in our community. And that's what we're going to hope to do. All right. Liam Brennan, exploratory campaigning for mayor of New Haven as a Democrat. When are you going to decide whether or not you're a candidate? Assuming everything go, goes ahead, I mean, I would expect um, early February, mid-February would be probably be likely. It was really nice to have you on. Thank you so much for having me, Paul. It was great to be here. I was so surprised all these years you'd never been on, given all the stuff you're involved in. We'll have you back no matter what. Thank you so much. Liam Brennan on WNHC Dateline New Haven. Thanks to Harry Dross, our station manager and producer, gets us on all the platforms in the multiverse. We're going to take it out with the Afro-Semitic experience performing I Wish I Knew How It Feel to Be Free from the Groove's CD, A Plea for Peace. This is Paul Bass inviting you to fly free with us all day and all night long on WNHH, New Haven's home for community radio. Mm -hmm.